Interesting question for you this week, a question from you, and uh, as has been the case throughout most of this series so far, I would call this yet another thorny question. Here's the question that you sent me to preach on. Why do bad things happen to good people? Why do bad things happen to good people? And I don't know if you have noticed this, but I have found that over the past several weeks, as I've dealt with these very thorny topics, that my life has reflected the difficulty of the topic. Last week was a case in point. It was a total gong show. I don't want to go through the litany of woes that um, arrested my life, but it was about as bad as I have ever experienced coming up to a moment when I need to preach God's Word. And then again tonight, as we came to begin setting up for our time together to create this service that you are watching on a Sunday, we just ran into difficulty after difficulty after difficulty. And I am enough of a spirit-filled Christian that I um, think this is probably not an accident. So I hope that as we push through here, you get what God intends for you to get, because I believe that there are very high stakes involved. Why do bad things happen to good people? Well, my answer is simple. You could call this a one-sentence sermon. Um, Bad things happen to good people because there are no good people because we broke the world. Like we could just end the service right there. You're welcome. Bad things happen to good people because there are no good people because we broke the world. Um, Here is all the proof you'll ever need. Taken from Genesis chapter 3, beginning at verse 14. The Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the fields. On your belly you shall go and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. The man called his name's wife Eve because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man and at the east of the garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Why do bad things happen to good people? One, because evil is real. It likes to feast on your sorrows. And it's in a generational, zero-sum game, total war with you and your offspring. Look at verse 14. To the snake, God says, cursed are you above all livestock. I want you to shorten that sentence by one word. 
to get the full impact of what I think God is saying here to the snake. Cursed are you above all. Cursed, you're the most cursed. Who is the snake? In my opinion here, the snake is a literary stand-in for the devil. A literary stand-in for their adversary, for Lucifer, the one who is most cursed. Here's the point, it's a simple one. There is an enemy, you have an enemy, and his name is Nachash. Nachash is the Hebrew word for snake. Sounds scary, doesn't it? Nachash. We sometimes forget that we have an enemy. When things begin to go badly, we think it's just randomly happening. Forgetting that we have an enemy and his name is Snake. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. The famous words of 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8. I wonder if you ever felt opposed. Maybe wave at me in the room. You ever felt opposed? No, just me? Okay, a few of you. If you ever felt opposed, it's because you were. Do you feel opposed today? You are. You ever felt attacked? Because you were. Do you feel attacked today? You are. You ever felt like you're being set up? People can do this to you. Systems can do this to you. I believe that spiritual forces can do this to you. If you've ever felt like you're being set up, there's a very good chance you were because you actually have an enemy. Why is this good news? Because you don't need to despair because something is irreparably and exclusively wrong with you. Do you ever feel like you are the cause of all the trouble in your life? My wife often feels that way. We find ourselves in trouble, and your first default, sweet lady, is often, what have we done? That can be a good default. If that leads to healthy introspection and proper humility, that's a good thing. But sometimes you find yourself in trouble because you have an enemy whose name is Snake. Here's um, my life hack for when I feel like I'm being assailed by the snake. I slow down. It's literally that practical. I slow down. I got this interesting story from an actual experience we had while traveling south. We were thinking about planting a church in Miami, and so we were heading south to Miami to scout it for a couple of weeks. Nikki and myself, all four of our kids, they were just little. We were in our Mazda MPV, and it had no air conditioning. And we were in the southern states, and it was pouring. The rain was pouring, and the van was fogging up, and we'd pulled over at one of those little podunk nowhere stops in the middle of Nowheresville, USA, and checked into a hotel that was infested with cockroaches. It was horrible. Nick was like, that, we're not staying. We're, we're not, she may have said some choice words, like, we're not staying. I said, oh, okay, 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 let's get repacked. I'll drive across the street to see if the motel across the street has any room in the inn. And I kid you not, no word of a lie, no word of exaggeration. It was pouring rain. It was pouring in sheets. And as I drove frantically, you know what it's like to be frantic, right? When you're frantic, what do you tend to do? You tend to speed up. So I'm frantically driving down the hill from the hotel we were in to cross the street to go and see if anyone had room for us. 
And literally, a still small voice in my head said to me as I approached the intersection, slow down. And so I slowed down, and as I approached that intersection, I had a green light, by the way, at a crawl in pouring, sheeting rain. A truck just ripped through the intersection on the red. Would have wiped me right out. Slow down. So that's my strategy when I feel attacked. I slow down and then I take a few breaths and I remind the snake of his destiny. I remind the snake that though my life may be difficult in this moment, his life's about to get much more difficult because he is living on borrowed time between today and that great and final day when the sun once and for all crushes his head. So next time you feel attacked, slow down and remind the snake of his destiny. Submit yourselves to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. James 4, 7. My dad loved to tell me when I was a little boy, feeling scared, feeling frightened, maybe I'd woken up from a nightmare. He always said to me, son, In my experience, the devil doesn't spend much time troubling Christians because the second he approaches a true follower of Jesus, he has to deal with the living spirit of the living God who lives within you. My dad looked me in the eye and said, I'm quite sure, son, that he spends his time tormenting those who do not have the Holy Spirit living in them. Greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. Stop living in fear today. Did you notice that um, the lion in 1 Peter 5 is seeking someone to devour? Your adversary, the devil, wanders about like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. I find here a very interesting connection to the words in Genesis 3 verse 14 part B. Look what God says to the snake. On your belly you will go and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. You should be hearing a bell ringing in your mind. Ding, 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 ding. The word dust is an important word in the Genesis story. How do we know? We remember perhaps Genesis chapter 3, verse 19. We read it off the top here. As God curses Adam, he says to him what? For dust you are, and to dust you shall return. Boring on allegory, only a very little bit here. Adam is dust. The snake is cursed to eat the dust. I do not think it is much of a stretch to say that evil loves to feast on humanity's sorrow. This is a theme that works its way through much of Western literature. The concept that evil loves to feed on more evil. The idea that the more evil we add to the world, the worse the world gets. And this is something that, of course, you would know intuitively from your experience in the world, right? A bad situation gets worse as you add more badness to it. Evil loves to feast on humanity's sorrow, so um, do your part to add joy, not sorrow, to your sphere of influence in the world. I have one of those um, snappy hashtags here for you. Maybe somebody will make me a t-shirt. Hashtag, starve the snake. 
You remember that one, won't you? You will, mark my words, you will find yourself in a situation this week where you have a choice. You can add chaos, tension, sometimes hatred, bitterness, evil, call it what it is. You can add evil to a situation or you can starve the snake. And you can inject into that difficult moment love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And let's be very careful to say that it's only Jesus' people who can freely inject the fruit of the Spirit into a dark situation because it's only Jesus' people who have the Spirit of God living within them. Hashtag starve the snake. And I want you to uh, make sure that you don't miss that this is total, never-ending war that you are involved in here. Take a look on screen at verse 15. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. I just want to let you know, because I'm trying to answer that question, why do bad things happen to good people, that we are in a generational war here. It stretches back right to the beginning of the human story. Have you forgotten that in the midst of the busyness of your prosperous Western life? Why are things going wrong all the time? Because you're in a generational war that never ends. Let's layer some theology on this. Yes, we know that Jesus won the victory at Calvary's cross. We know that that victory was sealed in the empty tomb. So we know this. We know that the victory belongs to the Lord, and yet we are still trudging home to the new world through the shadowlands of the old one. Don't miss that. You are trudging home to the new world, to Olam Haba, as we talked about last week. You are trudging home to the new Jerusalem through the fallenness of your local context. So don't despair. This is how it is. It's normal. There's nothing particularly wrong with you. You are just experiencing life as one pawn in a generational conflict. We are not yet what we shall one day be. Okay? But thanks be to God, we know that we are seated with God in Christ even now. And that and only that is why we do not lose hope. Note that our future hope does not change the generational war in which we find ourselves. We are living in some sense in two places at once. I write about this in my book. I call you Marty McFly. For those of you of my generation and slightly older, you'll remember Back to the Future. If you're young enough that you have not seen the Back to the Future trilogy, please check it out. It's my favorite film of all time. Marty McFly is a boy who travels to the past and then is trying to get back to the future, to 1985. Marty McFly in the story ends up living in two places at once. You are Marty McFly. You are seated with God in Christ in heavenly places right now while trudging home in the here and now through the battlefield of life to the new Jerusalem. So cling to your future hope and let that inform the stamina that you bring to bear on the difficulty of your daily life. And I'm here to remind you that you're going to need all the hope you can get 
because bad things happen to good people because, point number two, pain is now baked in to procreation. And an endless power struggle is baked in to the procreating partners. We get this out of Eve's curse in verse 16. To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband and he shall rule over you. In pain you shall bring forth children and your teshukah will be for your husband but he shall rule over you. All right, time to testify. Has anybody ever experienced any pain in the process of raising children? And everybody said, amen. Okay, I love my kids. They are a pain in the neck. They're a pain in my butt. They're a pain in my pocketbook. And worst of all, one day they will be a pain in my heart as I miss them after they have moved out to begin to build their own adult lives. That is the real, isn't that the real pain? That you love these painful little ones to the point of pain. And they bring you pain. And someday when they leave, it's going to bring you more pain. There's just no escape from pain. In pain, you will bring forth children. Why would God, as part of his curse of Eve, introduce pain into the parenting journey. You ever wondered about this? Like, is God just cruel? Because I don't know about you, but I'm not super excited about following a God who is cruel. Doesn't seem very godly to me. So, the answer, obviously, theologically, is no, God is not cruel. He cannot be cruel. He wouldn't be perfect if he was. So why then does he introduce pain into the parenting journey? Could it be, hear me now church, that he introduced pain into the childbearing journey to open up our eyes and to soften up our hearts to our child's parent relationship to him? Has anyone ever learned anything about their relationship to God through their relationship to either their parents or their relationship to their own little children. Wave at me if that's been your experience. Okay, there's your answer. God is not cruel, he's kind. How about that? Even in his curse of Eve, he is being kind to the human race. Placing on us a curse that will teach us about our relationship to him. Same thing with um, Eve's second curse. Your teshukah shall be for your husband, but he shall rule over you. The word here, teshukah, means an inordinate desire to dominate. So the second curse he lays on Eve ought to strike fear in your heart if you find yourself in an ongoing relationship with the opposite sex. If you're a husband with a wife, if you're a wife with a husband, this ought to make you sweat. If you're contemplating someday stepping into a lifelong marital union, this ought to strike fear in your heart. Your desire, your teshukah, shall be for your husband, but he shall rule over you. You will have an inordinate desire to dominate your husband. Why is the domineering woman an archetype in almost all Western literature, media, and caricature? Because it's the way it is. None of the women are saying amen. I get it. 
The domineering woman is an archetype because of the curse. Because of the curse. And there is no escape from the curse. So this means if you are a daughter of Eve, if you have a husband, you will have, if the Bible is true, an inbred desire to dominate your husband. But in the words of verse 16, part B, he shall rule over you. So here we have in Eve's curse, a domineering woman trying to dominate a power-tripping man. Sounds like the root of all marital conflict throughout all time, everywhere, right there. You're welcome. I'm here to help. Could I get a witness? Have you experienced this in your own life? Do you, I mean, you don't want to admit it maybe in front of these people. I've seen it. I've experienced it. One wants to dominate. The other wants to rule. So let's ask the question again about God. Why would God make this the second curse he lays upon Eve? To bring us to the end of ourself. To bring us to the point where we awaken rudely to our abject need of someone else to deal with our sin problem. Because I'm here to tell you, fellas, you can't fix your wife. And I'm here to tell you, ladies, you can't fix your husband. Your only hope is Jesus. Your, say it again, your only hope is Jesus. You want to help mend the world. Here's how you do it. Women, learn the art of submission. Men, learn the discipline of surrender. I wrote a whole chapter on this in my book, chapter six. Some countercultural advice for husbands and wives. The answer is submission and surrender. And we only find the ability to do this as the new life of Christ takes root in our hearts by the ongoing power and working of the Holy Spirit. Also, point number three um, stop listening to the wrong voices because the hymn of woe is real. Get a load of verses 17 through 19. And to Adam he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Here's the hymn of woe. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken. For you are dust and to dust you shall return. I want you to note here the first part of the hymn of woe. In fact, it's the introduction to the hymn of woe. Because, he says to Adam, you have listened to the voice of your wife. Why is this a big deal? Because God already told Adam what to do in Genesis 2 verse 16. Do you remember the story? It's important not to miss this. God already told Adam what to do. You can eat of every tree in the garden. Every single tree that bears fruit in this entire garden that I just made for you and your wife is fair game. Eat of it all you want. But that one, yeah, that one, I know it's beautiful. It's called the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Leave it alone. In the day you eat of it, you shall surely die. So don't miss this point. It's important. God has already told Adam what to do. Then the snake comes into the picture in Genesis 3 verse 1. 
He finds Eve wandering alone in the garden. He asks her about the fruit of the tree. She sees that it looks nice, probably tasty to eat and good for giving one knowledge. She's like, nah, we're not supposed to eat of that one. And the snake deceives her. The snake says to her, did God surely say? Has evil ever said that to you? Really? Who's going to know? No one has to know. Can I, can I get one witness in this house? Evil ever talk to you like that? That's the snake. Did God really say? And I mean, Eve must have said something unrecorded in the Genesis account to Adam as she gave him the fruit and he ate in Genesis 3.6. Because God in cursing him says to him, because you listened to the voice of your wife. So I wonder if Eve said to Adam in that unrecorded sentence or two, I don't know, looks pretty good to me. The snake says he thinks it's safe. Uh, I mean, no one has to know. No, No one has to know. Adam listened to her instead of listening to God. Here's my pastoral question for you because I care about you. What wrong voices are you listening to? Somebody ought to say amen. I mean, I could list them off, but for the sake of time, I won't. Just do me a favor. Pause this week. Maybe even sit down and write them down. All the wrong voices that you're listening to. Then rip that piece of paper out of your diary, ball it up, and throw it in the fire. Stop listening to wrong voices. I mean, plug your ears, church, because you don't want to live the hymn of woe. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust. And to dust you shall return. Cursed, pain, all the days of your life. Thorns, thistles, toil, sweat, death, decay, dust. Ever tried to grow flowers and got thorns? Somebody holler at your boy. Ever tried to bring new life and instead you got death? Ever toiled and sweat and didn't get to experience the fruit of your labor? Somebody holler at your boy if that's you, right? Again and again and again and again in my life, I have toiled and sweat and given my life's blood to try and attain a goal, and I have failed. Why? Because of the curse. You're like, Todd, this is very depressing. Sorry, that's life in the broken world. As far as I see it, you have two choices. One, do whatever you can to numb the pain, which is what most of your friends are doing. I know it's not nice to say it, but it's the truth, I don't care. Right? Most of the people you know spend most of their time doing whatever they can to numb the pain. So that's a strategy. Or you can come to Jesus, the king of pain. All this pain talk maybe makes a bit more sense why the king of glory had to go to a cross to suffer unbelievable pain as he paid the price for your sin and mine, and not just our sins, but the sins of the world. 
We tend to focus on the fact that they lashed him. And we tend to focus on the fact that they nailed him to that tree. And we tend to focus on the fact that they pushed a crown of thorns into his head. And we tend to focus on the fact that as they lifted that cross and it fell into the hole prepared for him, that all his joints would have popped out as he hit the ground. We tend to focus on the physical pain, forgetting that it was the spiritual existential pain that was by far worse as the father turned his back on the son because the son had become so filthy in bearing the sins of us all. Jesus is the king of pain. He bore our iniquities on the tree. And so every time you experience pain. If you belong to Jesus, I want you to use that moment to identify with your Savior who has borne your pain on the tree already. And I don't want you to sit there in that pain. I want you to look through the pain of Good Friday to the victory of Easter Sunday morning. And I want you to remember that when Jesus Christ, the King of pain, arose again from death, he was the King of pain no longer, but now he was the King of life. And death will never touch him again. And as you belong to him, the second death will not touch you either. You see, my dear friends, Point number four, my final point. Jesus reverses Eden's curse. I hope you love this part and worship band, you can join me on stage because I'm almost done. Notice the poetry of this. I hope this makes your night worthwhile, those of you who came to help me preach. I hope this makes your time worthwhile, those of you who are watching at home. Jesus reverses Eden's curse. In verse 21, I want you to notice that Adam and Eve are covered in the blood of the first two slaughtered animals. I want you to note that it does not say in the Genesis account that God took time to clean and salt and tan the hides from the first two animals he killed to cover Adam and Eve. No, it just says that he killed them and covered them in the skins. And so I have always believed that as Adam and Eve were sent forth, banished from Eden, they were sent forth, covered in the blood of those two animals. Because of Jesus' shed blood on the cross, as the once and final sacrifice for sins, we are now clothed in His righteousness. 2 Corinthians 5.21, Jesus turns Eden's curse on its head. In verse 21, part B, God decides that Adam and Eve must die so that they do not live forever as sinners. Did you ever find it weird that the penalty for sin was death? It's only weird until you contemplate the awful fact that if they had been allowed to eat of the tree in life so that they would live forever, they would have been doomed to live forever as God's enemies, separated from Him because of their sin. So God decides that they must die so that they don't live forever as sinners because Jesus died once for all and then rose again. All those who become his friends will live forever. Echoing the words of John 3, 16. Receive it, church. In verse 22, God casts them out of Eden. The word here in Hebrew is shalach. It's the word you would use for casting a spear. It's the word you would use for grabbing an animal by the scruff of its neck and flinging it from you. 
He casts them out of Eden in Jesus. God says, come unto me, all ye who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Jesus turns Eden's curse on its head. In verse 24, God divorced them from Eden. Yegaresh is the word here, for he sent them away. Are you receiving it tonight? God divorced them from Eden. Jesus says, the spirit and the bride say come. And let the one who hears say come. And let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires take the water of life without price. Revelation twenty-two seventeen. And finally, in verse 24, part B. Receive it, friends. We see that a flaming sword bars them from their home. Jesus turns Eden's curse on its head. He welcomes all those with clean robes home in Revelation twenty-two fourteen. Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life and that they may enter the city by the gates. Revelation twenty-two fourteen. Church, your robes were dirty. Now they are clean. The tree of life was off limits. Someday it will be yours by right. The gates of Eden were barred, but the gates, somebody shout in their heart at least, the gates of the new Jerusalem are open and no one shuts them day or night. So although bad things definitely still do happen. In Jesus, you are headed for something very good.